0: Amen. All right, good morning. So, kids, if you're still in here, you can head to kids. I believe we're using those back doors back there. Like Kirk said, my name is Eric Burnley. Um, I have uh, served here at Genesis with the band and with the elders for a number of years now. And today I have the honor and privilege of speaking with you about God's love, the gift of love. So to get us started, I thought it might be a little fun to have a kind of a guessing game on what some people have said about love throughout the ages. Love is one of those things that everybody kind of has a take on, and I've seen some pretty amazing quotes. So we're going to put up a quote on screen, and then if you know who who said it, go ahead and shout it out. All right, all you need is love, the Beatles, great. Yes, yeah, so I, I started off with an easy one. How about this one? Love is a serious mental disease. <laughs> As, who's that? Kanye. Kanye. Good guess. <laughs> Plato. We loved with a love that was more than love. I don't even think I get that one. Any guesses? That was Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, The next one, the man of knowledge must be able not only to love his enemies, but also to hate his friends. (laughs) That one might make sense once you realize that it was Friedrich Nietzsche who said that. This next one's fun. We're all a little weird, and life's a little weird. And when we find someone whose weirdness is compatible with ours, we join up with them, and we fall in a mutual weirdness, and we call it love. Yes, Dr. Seuss. Next one, never love anyone who treats you like you're ordinary. That is Oscar Wilde. Next one, I have decided to stick with love, for hate is too great a burden to bear. Guess is there? Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, for the scientists, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. I was kind of surprised by this one. That is Carl Sagan. I love you more than coffee, but please don't make me prove it. <coughs> I think that was more of a meme, but it said that Elizabeth Evans said that. I don't know who that is, but the quote's good. Uh, next one, we accept the love we think we deserve. This is a really hard one, <clears throat> but it kind of spoke to me. This is a director, Steven Chavosky, film writer. And then one more, again, science. Gravitation is not responsible for people falling in love. And Any guesses? That is Einstein. Perfect. Somebody said it? Okay. So these are all really just kind of meant to have a little fun to, with how diverse our human interpretations of love can get. But behind all of these quotes, I think we all know that there is in each of us this desire to be loved. It is without a doubt one of the deepest longings inherent in the human condition. And the evidence of this goes beyond just these quotes, right? There are countless poems, songs, books, romance novels, even those Amish farm ones, and rom-coms, the Hallmark Channel Christmas movie empire is built on this longing. There are millions of voices trying to speak into this. And I can think of one very iconic example that I feel is pretty timely for us, and that is the 1965 classic, A Charlie Brown Christmas. So, the episode starts out with Charlie Brown saying that he just doesn't feel like he understands Christmas, and then he starts bemoaning the fact that nobody sent him a Christmas card. He feels as empty as his mailbox, and he says, I know nobody likes me, why do we have to have a holiday to, to emphasize it? There's this sense of longing that kind of pervades the whole show. And the characters are all seen as trying to fulfill this longing with whatever they can. Lucy wants plinking nickels and real estate. Sally wants 10s and 20s because she's a gangster. <laughs> Linus just wants to hold his blanket and not get beat up by his sister Lucy. But at least he knows that commercialism is not the answer. It is suggested that Charlie Brown needs involvement. Maybe that's going to fulfill this longing and he'll feel the love of Christmas. But directing a play does not work out like he intends. Then he thinks maybe it's this Christmas tree that will fill the hole. And he even goes out and he finds one that he thinks will give him a sense of purpose and belonging... But even that falls short when he gains no acceptance from his friends, so-called friends, nor when he tries through human effort to make the tree perfect. Hopefully you're seeing overtones of the gospel there where man-centered effort falls short. Now, not to spoil the ending some 50-odd years in, but Linus reads out the birth of Christ story from Luke 2 which shows us how God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus while we were still sinners. We'll get to that in a minute. And it is at that point that Charlie Brown gets it. And I would take it a step further, perhaps, and say he is given what he was looking for all along. The only love that truly fulfills comes from the Lord, which was shown to us by him sending God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh as a baby boy into space and time here on earth who would live out the perfect life that you and I could not, died on a cross, rose again three days later, ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will one day come again. Okay, maybe Charlie Brown didn't get all of that, but I like to think he got the love part because he subsequently takes this tree makes like a tree, and gets out of there. And his friends, also seemingly affected by the story of Christ's birth, actually show themselves to have compassion. And they rally around this little tree, they decorate it, and they show love to one another, including Charlie Brown, by wishing him a Merry Christmas. Now that I know is reading a whole lot into a cartoon. I know. It's just all for illustration purposes, because I think we are all in a sense, like Charlie Brown, in that we are longing to be loved, to be accepted, I would say to be fully known and still loved. At the end of the program, Charlie Brown is still the same person. He still is wishy-washy self that he was in the beginning, but he finally knows that he is loved in spite of himself. And that, in a really oversimplified way, is the message of Christmas. God loves us through his Son in spite of ourselves. And all around the Christmas season, the Advent season, there are these themes that resonate of hope and love and peace and joy. And this month, we're taking a look at each of these in depth by looking at how the Apostle Paul, in Romans 5, hones in on these themes and explains God's design for each of them to manifest in our lives. Now, we've taken a brief look at the way that humans have described love, but what we're going to do today is we're going to open up Romans 5, and we're going to see how God shows his love. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 5. In the Bibles, we have Bibles at the end of these rows. If you do not have a Bible please take one of those. That's our gift to you. We're going to be on page 1043 in that Bible. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So from this passage, I think that there is much to see about the love of God. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and start digging into our points, okay? Point number 1. The love of God is unbounded, unlimited, and unending. Now, if you look down at verse 5, Paul says, "Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit." Who has been given to us? Now, first of all, we do need to clarify that this is not talking about our love for God. It is the love of God for us. This probably would have been more confusing in other translations like the King James, which says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The ESV makes it a little simpler for us to to see because it, it, it renders that God's love has been poured into our hearts. But it is an important distinction because only the love of God for us would be poured out through the Holy Spirit, not the other way around. Okay, So it's God pouring His love into our hearts. Next, I think we can look at the words that are used here. God's love has been poured into our hearts. In Scripture, we often see the Holy Spirit associated with images of water, like in Ezekiel 36. Water symbolizes the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Um, John 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he talks about life-giving water when he says, those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, Baptisms like we celebrate here at Genesis, The, the water itself does not save you. It just gets you wet. We've talked about that before. But it symbolizes a cleansing, a rebirth, and the purification by grace through faith in the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's this symbolic connection between water and the Spirit. That's why the word poured here is such a great image. The Holy Spirit is God's way of infusing his love into our innermost being. The Spirit is the agent of God's love. Dane Ortlund said it this way, into our empty souls like a glass of cold water to a thirsty mouth. God poured his love He poured his Holy Spirit into us to internalize the actual experience of God's love. In Acts 2, verse 17, we see Peter reference the Old Testament book of Joel when he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Titus 3, verse 6, we see Paul similarly speak of the Holy Spirit whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Richly is such a great word there. Because when God is pouring out his love, that points to the overabundance of his love, the unending, unlimited, unmeasured depths of his love. He doesn't just send a Hallmark card once a year and call it quits, right? He pours it out abundantly, continuously. Even when we are navel-gazing, He is still pouring out his love. And that's because God himself is unbounded, unending, unlimited. Ephesians 3, verse 8 and 19 say, Paul prays that his audience might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Jonathan Edwards calls God's love an ocean without shores or bottom. And we sing several songs here at Genesis to kind of point to this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean. Over me, in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Point two God's love is unconditional, uninfluenced, and undeserved. So if you look down at verses six through ten, You'll note that there's this progressive strengthening of the words that Paul uses here. Verse 6, he says, while we were still weak, that's talking about our moral frailty, not our physical weakness. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. A little stronger word. Verse 8, while we were still sinners. Verse 10, while we were enemies. This is meant to progressively show the hopelessness Of our sinful condition. Without a Savior stepping in, we will be left dead in our trespasses. Now it's important to note here that when Paul uses the term ungodly, he is meaning all of us. He's kind of pointing back to Romans 1, verse 18, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is not just meant for Gentiles or non-Jewish people. For Paul explicitly states, just a bit later in Romans 3, verse 9, are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then subsequently in verse 23, just in case... You were thinking, hey, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Greek, I'm good. He says, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that means we are all in the same boat. We all have the same problem. And remember, it is faith which saves you, but that faith must be in the correct object. Faith in yourself will not save you. Redemption is found only in Christ Jesus. Faith in him alone will save. Now this is important, because if we do not see that we have a problem, if we do not see ourselves as part of the ungodly, we don't acknowledge that we, are part, that we have a problem. And if you don't have a problem, you don't need a Savior. Which flies right in the face of John 3.16. Right? God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. In Genesis 1, this is a, a kind of a different angle of this. Genesis 1, God created everything and it was good. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin in rebellion. The fall occurs and everything... Is affected. Now, for each of us, our individual relationship with God is broken and in need of mending. But not only that, all of creation is broken. Everything dies now. And that was not the way it was meant to be. There's this beautiful term called shalom. And I think we shortchanged it a bit when we just kind of call it peace and let it go with that. But it means so much more. It is more like a universal peace, a wholeness and flourishing. I like the way that Matt Chandler and Jared Wilson term it in the explicit gospel when they say it's the way things ought to be. Death was not supposed to loom over everything. We were not meant to go through the holidays with empty seats at tables. Our relationship with God was not supposed to be broken. Envy and rage, pain, sickness, and suffering, none of that was in what God had planned. But it came about with the fall in Genesis 3. And all of us, are under the condition of being separated from God by our sinful nature. That's what Paul means by the term here, ungodly. We are not God. It doesn't mean that there's some Venn diagram somewhere where there's like a circle of godly people, and then there's a circle of ungodly people, unless you want to press that out. And the entirety of that circle of godly people is and only is Jesus Christ. Right? Now, I would say that perhaps this is part of the problem Jesus ran into with the Pharisees. Many of them thought that they were good people, godly people. But I'm sorry. If you have ever been a living, breathing person who is not Jesus Christ, you are who Paul is considering here as ungodly. Because as created beings, we fall under the fall. Jonathan Edwards says, God renounces both our self-indulgence and our self-righteousness. Either case, you are choosing something other than God himself to fill the hole that only he was meant to fill. It can be money, lust, pride. It can even be how awesome of a Christian you are, like Pharisees 2.0. No matter the case, because of our sin, we have a broken relationship with God, and there is absolutely no way we can reconcile that relationship in our own strength. That is why we need the Reconciler who died on the cross to reconcile us. But what that means then is we have nothing to bring before our God that would make him love us. We only bring sin. And that's not going to cut it, is it? With a holy God who is just. What we see happens here in Romans 5 is that God saves while we were enemies there is nothing lovely in us drawing him to love us leon morris says he loves because of what he is not because of what we are there is nothing in sinners to call forth the love of god but he does love us as the cross plainly shows it's important to kind of conflate these two notions together in our heads. Christ dying on the cross and God's love. They are at one in purpose. So this is all showing that God, how God's love is undeserved. We did nothing to deserve it. There is nothing good we do that causes him to love us. The term uninfluenced comes directly from A.W. Pink's work, The Attributes of God. He says the love of God is uninfluenced and by this we mean there was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it into exercise nothing in the creature to attract or prompt it the love of God is free spontaneous uncaused what was there in me to attract the heart of God absolutely nothing but to the contrary there was everything to repel him Everything calculated to make him loathe me. Sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. I kind of feel like beating myself up after that. But don't feel like that. If you think about the life of Jesus, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus was always spending time with the people that you least expect. He loved exactly the people who mainstream Jewish society would have deemed as unlovely. Remember in Mark 2, verse 17, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, those who acknowledge themselves as ungodly. There's a great hymn by Frederick Lehman called the love of god it says the love of god is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell it goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell the wandering child is reconciled by god's beloved son the aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. and it goes on could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every, everyone a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the hole that stretched from sky to sky. Point three God's love is unfathomable, unprecedented, and unmatched. If you would look at verse seven. And eight, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word scarcely there, Leon Morris kind of explains that a bit. He says, Paul is referring to the difficulty of finding someone to do this rather than the number of occasions when it happens. So by scarcely, he means it it would be really hard to find someone willing to die for a righteous person or a good person, for that matter. And by dare, he means it would take courage in order to do so. James Dunn says the effect of verse 7 is to remind the Roman audience of how unusual self-sacrifice is, even when the beneficiary is an attractive person. The point is simply underscored by re-emphasizing that God's love is not determined by such considerations. As the love of God is given unconditionally, uninfluenced by anything in us, his love stands as completely other than any human version of love. It is perhaps conceivable that someone might die for a good person, but it is unfathomable that anyone would die for an enemy. That's why we can say God's love is unprecedented. Now, the word that Paul uses for love here in the Greek is the word agape. And while it was used, it was used in earlier ancient Greek literature, its use there really did not match up with how it was used in the New Testament, where agape was intended to describe the love of God. And that, of course, is because the love of God does not conform to the understanding of love That was before that, which was rooted in the love of men. Agape is a love that is unconditional, sacrificial, self-giving. It is a love based on choice, not emotion or impulse, and it is meant for the good of another. And we could spend literally all day here just talking about the word agape. I only wanted to point out how even the use of the word agape was unprecedented at that time. And that should remind us, since all of creation is affected by the fall, even the way we love as human beings is not the way it was meant to be, right? And we provide evidence of that on a daily basis in how we treat our fellow human beings. But again, God's love is unprecedented it is entirely unmatched it is unlike any other love in existence john stott says in order to grasp verse 8 we need to remember that the essence of love loving is giving god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son the son of god loved me and gave himself for me Moreover, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or the unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving Everything, his very self, to those who deserved nothing from him except judgment. Now at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. God, in his love, sent his one and only Son into space and time here on earth to live as a human, fully God and fully man. He learned to walk, and yet he designed walking. He learned to talk and yet he spoke everything into being. It is unfathomable that he would humble himself to become a physical human baby and yet he humbled himself further to the point of death on a cross because he chose to love you before you were. Dane Ortlund, in his great book, Gentle and Lowly, also says this. Perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, which reveals our actual theology, whatever we say we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but... It is a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but slightly raised eyebrows in saying, how are they still falling short so much after all I've done for them? That's what we picture him wondering. We are now sinning against light, as the Puritans would say. We know the truth, and our hearts have been fundamentally transformed and still we fall and the shoulders of our soul remain drooped in God's presence once again it is just a result of projecting our own capacities to love onto God we do not know his truest heart and that is why Romans 6 Romans 5 6 through 11 is in the Bible amen now we're going to sing this in a few moments And it fantastically points to the picture of me, a Savior, saved... Start that over. Me, a sinner... (laughs) My eyes got ahead of me. Me, a sinner, saved by God when I was an enemy, such that now I am merely a sinner saved by grace through faith in his Son. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, enemies. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life. But I know that it is finished. Point four, God's love is unfailing, unceasing, and un. Stoppable. That kind of sounds like the Jesus storybook Bible definition by Sally Lloyd-Jones. She says God's love is a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. This I would think is perhaps pointing to the Hebrew word for the love of God This used in the Old Testament. Like said, it is often translated as steadfast love, mercy, loving kindness, and to flesh that out a bit more. I love the lyric to a song by the band Ghost Ship and it describes Chesed back to the Lord like this. It says your loving kindness your long suffering and your faithfulness in your love for me. Unconditional steadfast loyal true true You are faithful in your love for me. Jared Wilson said the chesed of God is why we have the agape of the cross. I guess you could say they're the same but different. They're not technically the same, right? But they all roll up to describing the love of God. So where do we see this unstoppable, unfailing, loving kindness in Romans 5? Let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled by, to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What we have here in verses 9 and 10 are what's called a fortiori arguments. Now, a fortiori I had no idea what this was, by the way. Afforsiori in Latin literally means from the stronger. I'm probably even saying it wrong. The term is used when drawing a conclusion that's even more obvious or convincing than the one that you just had drawn. Basically saying, if this is true, how much more must that be true? You can see the words much more in the translation in both verses, right? This was totally new to me. Maybe if you're like an attorney or a Latin scholar, you already knew this, but I'm a math guy that never took Latin. So, yeah. Anyway, for example, you could say uh, like this. A teenager, if a teenager refuses to get out of bed at 6 a.m. on a weekday when there's a bus that's going to be there at 6.30, how much more difficult will it be to get a teenager out of bed at 6 a.m., when it's a Saturday and they don't have to be anywhere and they stayed up the night before watching Christmas movies and eating cookies until 3 a.m. I'm not a teenager, but sometimes my lifestyle can mirror that one. <clears throat> so what Paul is saying here in each of these verses is an fortiori* argument. Verse 9, since God has justified the believer, obviously he will complete the act of saving that believer from the wrath of God. If God saved us while we were still sinners, like verse 6 says, we are then reconciled, and that means we are no longer enemies, but friends. If you trust in the work of Christ, God saves you through the blood of his Son, and now how much more assured can you be that God will save you as his friend? Oh, and by the way, you're not just a friend, you're his adopted son or daughter. Leon Morris says, If Christ has done the great work of justifying sinners, dying for God's enemies, he will certainly perform the comparatively simple task of keeping those who are now God's friends. De Nortland again from Gentle and Lowly. The logic of Romans 5 is, through his son, he drew near to us when we hated him. Will he remain distant now that we hope we can please him? He, e- he eagerly suffered for us when we were failing as orphans. Will he cross his arms now over our failures now that we're a- his adopted children? No, of course not. Anybody awake up there? I appreciate J.I. Packer's treatment of the text in 1 John 4 that points to the notion that God is love when he says it's not an abstract definition which stands alone but a summing up from the believer's standpoint of what the whole revelation set forth in scripture tells us about its author the statement presupposes all the rest of the biblical witness to God the God John is talking about in 1 John 4 the God who is love, he's talking about the same God who made the world, who judged it by the flood, who made and kept all the promises we talked about last week. Do you see the sovereign beauty of our Lord here? Because in his love, it is God who created everything that is, including you. It is also God whose holiness, justice, and wrath must be satisfied. It is also God whose goodness, grace, mercy, and love are on display when he gave God the Son, the baby in the manger, as the promised Messiah. It is God the Son who lived the singularly perfect life, died on the cross, rose in victory to save you from your sins. It is God the Spirit who brings people to faith. It is God the Son who, once you believe, Intercedes for you before God the Father. It is God at every step of the way, from beginning to end. Now, it's kind of important, I think, to see where Paul is going with this in chapter 5. And if you pull back and you take a look at Romans as a whole, chapter 5 starts embarking on a section that forms what's called a chiasm between chapters 5 and 8. Now, what in the world is a chiasm? Okay, well, it's this literary form in which you have points that subsequently relate to each other, such that you can lay them out like this. And when you point out how they relate to each other, they form an X, which is the Greek the letter chi. Greek letter chi. So, at a bird's view, bird's eye view, all Romans 5.8 forms this chiasm romans 5 1 through 11 talks about our assurance of future glory romans 8 verses 18 through 39 also talks about our assurance of future glory you take a step further in romans 5 12 through 21 is talks about the basis for our this assurance in the work of christ So does Romans 8, 1 through 17, talk about our grounds of assurance are in the work of Christ, mediated by the Spirit. It even does go a little further in where 6 and 7 are related to each other. 6 talks about the problem of sin, 7 talks about the problem of the law. But that is, probably more than you cared to know today, but that is why we're going to take a look at where Paul is headed in Romans 8 and how he speaks to the love of God there. Chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And that means I can finally rest from all my striving. For in his unstoppable love, he has known me completely, saved me when I was an enemy, brought me peace because he will carry it through fruition. There is a song by City Alike called Known in Love, which we don't sing here yet, <coughs> but it says. If you have seen my weakest moments and still you love me even then, I need no greater confirmation that God your goodness has no end. I come to Jesus, lay down my weakness. No need for hiding here in his light. This truth I treasure, my peace forever is being known and loved by him. So what does that mean for us going forward? Well, first of all, if you have never contemplated that God loves you, let's start there. My hope this morning is that you have seen that there is a God who loves like no parent, no friend, no lover ever could. And in His love, He has given you the gift of His Son because He knows the longing in your heart. He put it there. And He knows that He is the only one who can fulfill that longing in your heart. So if you feel a a tugging at your heart today... That you haven't felt before. So. I remember the day God saved me. I was at a church service. Like this. And our pastor at the time. Was dying of cancer. I had heard him preach the gospel many times. Over the previous months. But it was at. This particular moment which eventually happened to be the day that that pastor ultimately passed away, through the ministry of a pastor serving that day, I was overwhelmed by the sense of this love that we've been talking about. The Holy Spirit chose that moment to make God's love real to me. I don't recall what passage we were studying. I don't remember any particular illustration. I just know that God chose that moment. All it takes is a moment for the Spirit to do the work. And while none of us is assured a tomorrow, We are assured of the love of God. If that moment happens today, please don't leave here without speaking to someone, okay? We're going to have members of our church family over here after service who will be eager to pray with you. But if this is all new to you, that is your one and only application today to look at the love of God. For those who have believed, I hope that you have been refreshed and reminded today of God's love for you proven on the cross. And from there, he has called us to abide in his love, to abide in him. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Receive the love poured out into you by the Holy Spirit. See the goodness of our Lord and be changed by it. That's the call. Because not only is the love of God foundational in the gospel, and how it saves, how, how God saves and pours his love into us, but it's also an outpouring from us. Galatians five twenty two and 23 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love's mentioned first there. The love of God poured into us is meant to change us, and in being affected by his love, we ourselves pour out love. I think Galatians 5 is driven by Galatians 2. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me as a gift. Remember, this is not called the fruit of your striving. You don't, meaning you don't pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and you grit your teeth and you show love and peace. It doesn't work that way, does it? It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Leon calls this a creative act. Leon Morris calls it a creative act, meaning that the love of God being poured into us through the Holy Spirit creates love for others. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 22, we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now we get a chance to do this together as a church during Advent, leading up to the culmination next Saturday with uh, the culmination of a whole lot of work by a lot of people at the Gift of Love Christmas store. The Gift of Love, right? It's there for a purpose. That's a chance for us to take the love of God that has been poured into our hearts and in turn pour it out, love into families who are in need so that they might know the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is a great privilege to get to do this, and I just ask if you to maybe come join us here next uh, Saturday, Blevins, Saturday morning. What do you do in Saturday morning? You're going to be here, right? It is a great time, and we might actually even find something for you to do to help. Now, in closing, if you want a really humbling exercise. Look no further than Francis Chan's crazy love. Uh, in chapter 5, he encourages us to read the famous passage on love from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7, replacing the word love with your name. And see how true it rings. It's kind of a reality check. I'm going to do this, and it's going to be painful for me, I'll tell you. Eric is patient. Okay, right there, I'm out. <laughs> Eric, Eric is patient and kind. Eric does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Ouch. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Eric bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yes, that was difficult. Was it difficult for you? Know this only God is perfectly patient, only God is perfectly kind. Jesus did not insist on his own way. He was not irritable or resentful. He bore all things, believed all things. He endured all things. Now, I'm saying those in the past only because it is finished. Those are the words of our Savior on the cross. It is finished. Love, the perfect love of God, was proven to us that day on the cross. While we were enemies, and we never have to doubt that we are fully known and so fully loved. Amen? Now, this time of year, we focus on actively supporting our partners in mission by participating in something called the Advent Conspiracy. If you want to know more information about that, you can go to adventconspiracy.org. But each, each week, we're going to be showing a video of one of our partners. Uh, this week, our video is from the International Mission Board. Part of the money that we're going to be collecting throughout this whole Advent season and ultimately on Um, Christmas Eve, we'll have this big box down here, all season. Um, Part of the money that is collected through that will go to the IMB to fund missionaries throughout the world. So I'm going to close us in prayer. Uh, You'll see a video from the IMB, and then the band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in worshiping the Lord who loves us so well. Lord, we are so amazed at how you love us. Your love does not end. Your love does not grow tired of us. Your love does not demand that we make ourselves worthy. Rather, your love is long-suffering, self-giving, sacrificial, unconditional, steadfast, loyal, true. You love because of who you are. And we thank you today for being who you are and for giving your son in love to save us. It is in his holy name that we pray. Amen.